What are the top fraud litigation issues we need to be watching for in 2013? Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Part 3 of our 2013 Legal Roundtable featuring top security, privacy, and risk management attorneys. We're featuring David Nevetta of the Information Law Group, Ronald Rather of Faruqi Ireland and Cox, and Lisa Soto of the firm Hunton and Williams. As we pick up our conversation today, we're talking about fraud, and we're going to hear specifically from David Nevetta about some key cases and decisions. Let's transition now and talk a bit about fraud. And David, I'd like to ask some questions of you. And again, Lisa, uh, Ron, feel free to jump in. David, I'd like to start with some of the ACH fraud settlements and decisions we've, we've seen over the course of 2012, because there were some significant ones. What's been the impact of these decisions? At the end of the day, Ron mentioned something about uh, lawsuits going past the damages uh, pleading phase of, of, of the equation, and we're starting to get into issues of causation and uh, you know what is reasonable security on some level. I, I think the ACH fraud cases and settlements uh, really have kind of jumped to that point um, because, of course, in those cases, there's no issue of damages uh, most of the time. Uh, there is a loss of actual money from a small business's bank account because of some sort of security incident. So we skip past damages and we get to the concept under uh, the ECC 4A202 of what is commercially reasonable security in the online banking context. And so the impact of these cases, uh, in my view, is uh, they give us the first kind of demonstration of how courts are going to actually look at the concept of reasonable security. And I think that's important because as uh, both Lisa and Ron have indicated uh, the data breach cases involving personal information are getting past that damage uh, pleading phase, and uh, we will be addressing this very issue of what uh, what the duty of care was with respect to protecting that personal information. So we got a good preview of that in a slightly different context with these cases. Now, what was interesting in the cases was a couple things. Uh, first of all, I could, from reading them, uh, in my view, uh, there was a there was a lack of maybe comfort level with, with IT-related issues. Um, from reading a couple of the cases and, and, and kind of tracking uh, kind of the rationale for certain decisions or proclamations for, uh, about something like uh, two-factor authentication, for instance. One of the courts, uh, I think in PACO, in the uh, magistrate uh, decision, looked at uh, two-factor authentication, which really uh, was kind of an ineffective version of two-factor authentication. It could be argued not to even be two-factor authentication and said that that was good and well because it's uh, related to and, and corresponded to what the regulators had said. And in the experimental case where they had true two-factor authentication, the courts kind of went the other way and said that that, that was uh, not adequate on some level. Um, so we had kind of a, a split there in terms of the rationale. The other thing in terms of beyond judges and their ability to understand these issues, uh, what we did see was a heavy reliance, uh, and it goes back to some of the things we talked about earlier, on regulatory guidance. So in this case, uh, the FSIEC had put out regulatory guidance on online behavior, I'm sorry, on uh, online banking and what kind of security controls need to be in place, including multi-factor authentication, uh, also including uh, uh, back-end uh, fraud detection type of controls. And so uh, the courts really relied heavily on what that guidance said to establish what they thought the standard of care should have been and use that guidance to essentially set up uh, that standard of care and then make their rulings. 
So I think it highlighted both the, both those issues. The judges and their understanding and their, their kind of methodology for looking at the concept of reasonable security, as well as how heavily uh, they relied on the regulatory guidance and uh, the importance of that regulatory guidance in the litigation context. David, your perspective, we, we've pitted financial institutions against business customers and, and the settlements have favored each at different times. Who's winning? Is it the banking institution or the business customer that's coming out ahead? Well, so far in the lawsuits, I, you know, I think the business customer appears to be, to be winning. Now, uh, that said, of course, there are a lot of these uh, situations with online banking fraud that never get reported, uh, that are settled behind closed doors that we don't hear about. And uh, so, you know, it's hard to say who's ultimately winning. But when it comes to court, so far we have, you know, three big decisions ultimately, PACCO, EMI, and uh, another one, Choice Escrow, Land and Title First Bank Corp. In all three cases, uh, the banks have lost and, and the customer has won. And in the experiment on PACCO, they actually looked at the concept of, uh, of, of commercially reasonable security and in both cases the failure to have fraud detection in place to catch the money going uh, out the door was dispositive and, and led to a ruling. In the, the other case, the banks actually tried to use their contract language, uh, I believe it was an indemnification clause that required the customer to indemnify the bank for any losses, and the court ruled that uh, UCC 4A202 preempted uh, or nullified that indemnification clause. So the protections afforded by a potential contract between the bank and the business customer were not effective in that case, and I thought, and I think that's one area where I think a lot of banks were feeling comfortable is that if they had good contracts in place with respect to limits of liability and indemnification, that even if there was a security incident, that they could rely on those, and at least that one case in the district court uh, seemed to nullify that concept. And it was interesting because in the experimental, uh, the court in, in the lower court uh, ruling. Uh, indicated that there was commercially reasonable security in place because the business customer agreed in their contract that the bank's security was commercially reasonable at the outset. And they, they ruled on that, and they felt that that was sufficient to establish reasonable security. They didn't even look at the actual security. They wouldn't let experts testify on that because it was in the contract. The question is, uh, based on the decision I just mentioned a second ago, would an agreement uh, between a bank and a customer uh, that the security was commercially reasonable be nullified by UCC 4A202? Uh, I, I don't know, but it, it certainly seems possible based on that decision. I think the litigation question is of, of, uh, of interest, especially now that we're getting past the pleading stage and we're getting into discovery uh, and looking at the other issues that are going to come up in, in litigation, uh, especially in the context of those suits being brought uh, by consumers. Uh, for the loss of their data as opposed to the cases between uh, the two businesses that are being victimized. But in the case of the of the consumer, you know, now that we're past the pleading stage, it'll be interesting to see how the judges will deal, for example, with class certification issues. Um, as of uh, today in the litigation context, there's yet to be a class certified on that issue. When you look at the decisions that are coming out of the courts uh, and the basis on which they are finding uh, standing and adequate pleading of damages and causation. Most frequently, they're looking at uh, individualized circumstances. So, for example, a plaintiff is able to identify uh, the fact that they've been a victim of identity theft. Uh, or, for example, in Curry, they were able to uh, provide the court with an indicia that uh, 
the identity theft had to be as a consequence of the breach because they personally have not been engaged on you know, any other online activity, any other electronic transfers. Uh, so the only cause uh, of their identity theft had to be uh, the breach uh, that they're accused, the breach that is the subject of the complaint. You know, why is that important in the class context? Well, in order to sustain a class, there has to be uh, common answers to common questions uh, for the court to be able to certify class. Well, if the basis for surviving a motion to dismiss uh, are these individualized circumstances, I think that will make it challenging for plaintiffs to be able to certify a class. On the other side of it, there's this issue with regard to settlement. And I think David mentioned that oftentimes there is no real pecuniary harm to the majority of the class, but oftentimes these cases involve uh, large classes, um, sometimes hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions, sometimes 100 million people. And the task of having to settle uh, those types of cases, given the enormity of the class, can be overwhelming uh, and sometimes prohibitive you know, if you're not if you're going to try to pay each class member even a dollar if you're talking about a hundred million person class uh, that hundred million dollar settlement becomes prohibitive in terms of the company thinking about a means to try to settle that case so what we've seen are uh, attempts to try to settle by creating a side prey fund somehow establishing a way of providing a benefit to the class without actually paying money to the class. Well, recently we had a judge out of the Northern District of California uh, with respect to a settlement involving Facebook saying that that type of structure, creating a Cypre, which is a third party that's going to res that does something for the benefit of the public, and most often in the case of a class action, it's they're engaged in some conduct that's beneficial to the class members. So, for example, in a breach case, it might be an entity that assists consumers that have been victimized by breaches. So you give them the money, uh, they're, they're able to use that money presumably to the benefit of the class. Well, in this Facebook case, what the court said is that that type of structure, creating a Cypre, doesn't provide sufficient consideration uh, to the class to justify settlement and release. And that really creates a, a problem for companies trying to settle when on the one hand, if you pay any amount of money to the class, it, it one, it looks small, a dollar a person. Two, if you pay it to 100 million people, the cost of settling becomes prohibitive generally. And then on the other hand, if you try to come up with a creative way of being able to solve, resolve the case, provide some consideration to the class, you have these courts and you have these interest groups that are, that are pushing the courts to reject those types of settlements. So I think uh, all of those factors combined will make litigation interesting to follow in the years to come. David, one of the things that we saw emerge in 2011, certainly take effect in 2012, is the FFIEC Authentication Guidance Supplement. Given that financial institutions have taken some steps, made some investments, and they've had their efforts evaluated by the regulators, in terms of online authentication and fraud prevention, are we better off now than we were a year ago? Um, well, that, that entire the, the 2011 guidance um, was interesting because they, they accidentally leaked a version of that uh, in the midst of uh, the PACO and the experimental cases, which hadn't really been decided yet, or maybe one of them had been decided. 
it wasn't clear whether the lawsuits were driving the regulators to, uh, to make changes to, uh, to their guidance or vice versa. Uh, and so what I ended up seeing at the end of the day was a guidance document that kind of reflected a lot of uh, the rationale and, and the decision-making of the judges in, in the cases that were being uh, kind of uh, adjudicated right while they were, uh, the regulators were making the new guidance document up. Um, now, whether we're better off or not better off, uh, I'm not sure. I, I think at the end of the day, the combination of the new guidance from the SFIC as well as the decisions in ECHO and Experimental really raised the profile of, of these cases and really raised the profile and the uh, necessity of complying with uh, regulatory guidance. So uh, where the word guidance may have had a, an optional type of feel to it or thought uh, or uh, you know something that, that you could look at but didn't have to do on a mandatory basis, uh, I think many banks uh, now look at it in a much different way after after the release of the new guidance, especially uh, in conjunction with those lawsuits that are out there. And that brings us to the end of Part 3 of our 2013 Legal Roundtable. Upcoming, we'll discuss breach response with our attorneys, and we'll talk about the legislative trends they foresee in 2013. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.